The Free Speech Coalition. The Free Speech Coalition. The Free Speech Coalition. Free Speech Coalition. The Free Speech Coalition. The Free Speech Coalition. Podcast. Welcome to the Free Speech Coalition podcast. My name is Patrick, and today I'm joined by two special guests. Via telephone, we've got National MP Simon O'Connor. And in studio, we've got Stephen Franks, constitutional lawyer and spokesman for the Free Speech Coalition. Good afternoon, gentlemen. Hello, Patrick. Stephen. And before we get into our discussion on uh, freedom of expression, um, uh, can you give us a quick bio, tell your lis- our listeners uh, something about yourselves, you know, those that aren't uh, aware of your work? I'll start, Simon. Um, I'm, I'm uh, of the generation, I'm, I'm a classic baby boomer. Uh, we grew up assuming that free streets was nearly absolute. You know, crying fire in the crowded theatre was the only exception, uh, sort of imminent incitement of violence. And uh, getting involved with the Free Speech Coalition is something that I just never in my wildest dreams thought would be uh, necessary or possible in my lifetime. So coming to this from years as a commercial lawyer, then a couple of terms as an MP, and then back again in uh, regulatory and public policy, public law work, to get into something that was a fundamental part of the Enlightenment is just startling to me. Yeah, and so Simon O'Connor, as you know, I'm the Member of Parliament for Tamaki, a national uh, MP, and this is my uh, third term. And Currently, I'm also the chair of the Foreign Affairs, Defence and Trade uh, Committee. And while a, a slightly different generation to, to Stephen actually share some of his uh, concerns when I went through university, in fact, my postgraduate work is around the nature of um, human rights and actually university days where there was robust uh, discussion in lecture theatres and tutorials on all sorts of ideas, I wouldn't have thought then that, you know, here I am, uh, X number of years later, um, in a society that's beginning to discuss how we limit uh, speech because it may or may not offend uh, certain groups, notions of safe spaces. All of this is, is well, it's particularly when I was studying uh, foreign uh, to it, and exactly, Stephen, I agree with you, you know, freedom of speech coming out of the Enlightenment has been just one of the, the bedrock foundational elements of, of our country, of democracy, and yet here we find ourselves um, having to not only discuss it, which is great, we're for free speech, but actually defend it. You both mentioned that things have changed since your time at the universities. Um, can you put your finger on when this change started to occur and how or what those changes were? I mean, when did they begin to appear? Uh, it's sort of... It's... I think it probably, going back, I could see it a lot earlier than uh, I actually recognised it. But I've seen it in my staff. Uh, we're a law firm, we have young staff. And the care that they take in not addressing certain issues or just steering clear and looking sideways when some things are raised, it's in the self-censorship of of what used to be regarded as a normal form of a joke. Most jokes in most cultures, I remember reading a a solemn tome on this once, are all about walking the boundaries. They're about saying something that would really be offensive if you didn't know that there was a humorous intent. And now there are so many territories where they just don't want to do it. And I, I always used to assume that it was just sort of an age effect, that 
people of your generation were still joking in the same uninhibited way that we would have, but I understand not. And Simon and I really should be interrogating you and asking right. what it feels like. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> you're, you're right. Um, being a free speech supporter now, to the extent that I am, uh, can be rather problematic. I, I'm just surprised that I'm the minority in something that I thought was a settled principle. I'd say one thing, though. It, there's no specific moment. I think a lot of these sort of, let's say, cultural movements or changes often um, happen happen slowly and they, they, they build on, on one another. And, you know, I think as we've quite rightly pursued uh, civil rights uh, and the expansion of our rights, thinking in community and who's uh, accepted and, and rightly bringing communities in that have been excluded, as that's started, a, a slight further dynamic is that it's, it's slowly been built on more and more and more. We're all of a sudden not only about bringing people in, but then making very conscious decisions that we're going to start excluding other groups, peoples, or, or bits of thought, and you can look towards changes in politics, and I'd certainly suggest in our universities, um, a lot more progressive thinkers, and almost excluding contrary views, and it just slowly impacts, particularly into the younger generation, because that's all they've heard. They haven't heard counterpoints, I don't know about yourselves, but when I go around and talk often to younger people, but not, again, only young people, they'll ask me a question on a topic X, Y, and Z, and they'll put forward their arguments. When I put a counter-argument to them, they mightn't agree with it, but they often say, well, we haven't heard that before. And I think it's a real problem in, again, a modern democracy where people haven't heard, if you will, both sides of an argument. They've only heard one side. Simon, I, I, I think of this. I was raised in a fundamentalist Christian sect, it would be called, and when I was about 14, I... Uh, decided intellectually that I was an atheist and probably over the next couple of years I think I became very um, unaffiliated. But I was still almost relieved when people would make jokes about weirdos or would um, highlight the fact that, that they knew that I'd had that background and, that, and, and it would become a, a topic of, of um, mockery because it brought it out in the open. And at that time, this was the time of Azaria Chamberlain, there were all sorts of weird theories running around about you know, um, strange, strange ceremonies in the desert and drinking blood and all sorts of stupid stuff. For me, as a potential target of that, I really wanted to have it come out, and I liked it coming out as jokes and mockery, because in a sense, when people can joke with you about something like that, they're showing that... Um, they're with you and on your side. It's when you suspect that they're having those conversations behind your back and would never mention it to you that you think it really hurts. And I worry, I worry about all these. We talk about including and excluding. For me, jokes of all those kinds were inclusive. My, I travelled in the States with a Maori friend and um, he called me honky and I called him black bastard. And it was the way that we showed that we were such friends we could afford to take conversational risks. And even then in the US that was obviously made people uncomfortable, but it was part of the New Zealand culture that you you roasted or took or, 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 or raised sensitive topics with friends in a way that was always intended to be a joke so you could last it off, but it, but it, it sucked out the tension. I see 
a complete diff- opposite here now. There's just a whole lot of unexplored and really um, high-pressure tension uh, uh, in society because they've become so closed down. Well, you do wonder at times, it's probably going at a slight tangent, but you know, we often hear about uh, the increasing anxiety and, and people, um, and there's obviously going to be a, a multimodal element of, of factors there, but I think one is that people are constantly checking themselves and am I allowed to have this thought? Am I allowed to actually express this thought? If I express this thought, what is someone going to say? And that that's an anxious driving uh, decision. And I think fundamentally when we get into free speech discussions, it's always, well, who's driving this? Who, who is setting what is acceptable or not? You know, what jokes are in, what jokes are out, what theories are in, what theories are out? You know, one of the fundamental questions we must always ask, in my thinking, is who sets the rules? Um, and I've certainly debated that with some of my more left-wing progressive colleagues in Parliament is, you know, they're very supportive of, um, uh, well, effectively reducing free speech and introducing hate speech legislation. But I always point out to them, is it you deciding what's in or me? Because I suspect if I was the one who had to decide, you wouldn't be so keen. And better say here clearly, I wouldn't be supporting hate speech legislation. But if you get the, 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 the point, which is someone's got to make the decision, someone is controlling the agenda, and that's quite worrying to me. Well, when you get a state that, puts really powerful levers of coercion and imprisonment and punishment in the hands of anyone, it suddenly becomes important to have your mates with their hands on the levers. In other words, you end a situation of free speech, it suddenly becomes much more important to screw the scrum on appointments of human rights commissions and judges and so forth. The sad thing about screwing the scrum, it's one of the, I think, what I would term that sad hypocrisy is freedom of speech um, particularly in this century, has, has allowed a number of uh, groups that have been traditionally discriminated against to to have their say, uh, to become you know properly and more integrated into uh, society. And, and they rightly argued at the time that they were being discriminated against, they weren't able to express themselves, uh, that they were pushing against the powerful. But now that, you know, as you were saying, Stephen, they've got the levers, um, they're trying to, in some ways, do exactly the same now to the groups they don't like. In other words, they've been enabled through free speech to be who they are, to express who they are, and now they're trying to take those dynamics which kept them down and use them to keep others down. So, oh, no, no, your speech is, is, is hateful, or, oh, no, I, I don't like what you say. It offends me. You, you're not allowed to, to say it or even think it. Um, so, as I say, a sad hypocrisy that's developing. The current argument that we're hearing from advocates for hate speech laws and how these laws will benefit democracy is that by banning hate speech, it's actually helping facilitate hate speech. Um, It's the idea that democracy is not just a form of governance, but a method of sharing stories, and and that by speaking, you automatically suppress the speech of others. Uh, Minister Little held this uh, view in an article where he announced uh, the establishment of a review on current hate speech laws with the Ministry of Justice. Um, what do you think about this? Well, there's only one threat. I mean, he uses these sort of vague, fuzzy justifications. He says that it takes away with the very core of who a person is if you attack their ideas or their religion or their... Well, actually, that's what democracies are. They're places where you do want to discredit values and and views that you consider to be uh, horrible. And the... Roman Catholic Church would still be ruling supreme if people weren't allowed to attack the, va- the very core of, 
of a priest's authority and claim to and claim to be able to determine what you think we would still we would still be having the cold war if you hadn't been able to totally discredit communism and there's it's vital. I, I wonder, Simon, again, we can say, probably discuss it with, with age, whether this isn't a reflection of the almost complete irrelevance now of mainstream churches. I mean, you said, who's going to decide what's appropriate and what's not? And in the past, it was kind of safely insulated in notions of God and what you would or wouldn't say in front of your clergyman. And... Now people, getting rid of religion doesn't get rid of the urge to, um, to, to, to demonise, find sinners and to uh, cast them out and to all show that we agree on what sin is. And so there's a whole, a whole industry now of journalists who are filling the place that priests used to fill, running around looking for who is the appropriate sinners to condemn and to hate and for us all to join in casting out? Well, I think it's a really interesting um, analogy, actually. I often uh, refer to what we're seeing in some elements of progressive movements, and again, in freedom of speech and demands for hate speech legislation, safe zones and all of that, that we're actually seeing that, I call it the new dogma, that yeah, as authority groups and figures have diminished, so churches, but you see attacks on a whole lot of um, authority figures, be it judges, Lawyers, those uh, in politics, dare I say it, as they've been undermined in their, if you will, dogmatic approaches, it hasn't left a vacuum. Um, well, sorry, it has left a vacuum, and, and, but it hasn't just left it open to paradoxically allow lots of speech because there are no longer any moral or defined ethical norms. What we've seen is a new dogma that come in, as you say, a new priesthood, a new set of, of values. And I, I wrote recently um, a little uh, op-ed was, noting that we've just uh, rightly uh, got rid of blasphemy laws off New Zealand's books, yet uh, at the very same time, here we are talking about a new form of blasphemy laws uh, around hate speech of you know what a new dogmatic group of people will define as right or moral, um, and they will decide. And if you get it wrong, you won't be um, burnt at the stake, but you'll be put out and uh, shamed as strongly as possible. Um, in the public eye, or milkshakes thrown at you, eggs cracked on you. Um, yeah, it's, it's it's just a different group of people, in, in many ways, running the same dynamics that we've seen throughout history. And with the same drivers, there's always been censorious people who really long to um, tell others what they can and can't do and say, and what they how they hold their fork. And it's it's that the creation of genuine tolerance was very very unique in human experience and I fear that we may have seen it as a, a, a blip in human experience. Speaking of the blasphemy law and being repealed um, and other uh, free speech related statutes, we had ACT Party leader David Seymour on our show last episode uh, to explain his Freedom to Speak members bill. Now the bill quite radically will amend a few statutes on, on, the, uh, on our books. Um, it will repeal Section 61 of the Human Rights Act. It will amend the Harmful Digital Communications Act. It will repeal Section 4 of the Summary Offenses Act. And it will abolish the Human Rights Commission. Now, what do you gentlemen think about this? Yeah, I have to, I'd like to see the bill first. I mean, I may have failed in my various searches on the Parliament website and, and elsewhere. I haven't actually seen the bill, but I have obviously seen the 
um, the descriptors. I'm, I'm I'm a little nervous about elements of it. So you know, it's, it's all well and good to talk about removing Section 61, um, which is around racial discrimination. But Section 62, as far as I'm aware, is not mentioned is around sexual discrimination. And so. Um, I suppose I'm one of these people when it comes to rights is that you're sort of consistent across a range of issues or you're not. In other words, why remove racial uh, and, and not sexual? I'm slightly nervous around the summary offences. Um, I can understand that, you know, someone saying something offensive. Um, it, it, again, well, they have the right to do it, but equally, if, you know, I'm at the playground with my kids and there's someone screaming obscenities, or God, I even have to be just screaming the U.S. declaration at me. Um, you know, I think most Kiwis would want some ability to, to be able to stop that, not so much because of the speech, but because of the the action. Um, and the, the other point I'd make around the Human Rights Commission, uh, personally, I don't see much uh, point in it. I think it seems to only represent very particular groups, and I've argued in the past they actually don't promote human rights. Um, I wouldn't say much around closing it. I would just say that the Crown should stop funding it. it it's not really a, requires government funding, in my opinion. If it wants to advocate for particular groups and agendas, and let those people fund it, but not the Crown. Well, Simon, um, certainly on the last, that's reassuring. I think they've actually become pernicious. They are using taxpayers' funds to promote um, agendas that have not been voted on and are not, and for which there are definitely uh, n no substantial taxpayer support on many of it. But I'm, I'm wary about um, removing Section 61 entirely because I think race is, uh, race consciousness, race hatred is an evil genie. When it gets out of the bottle, it's very hard to put it back in. And I thought that Section 61 was actually a reasonable codification of the common law approach, which said if, you, if you're out there um, deliberately um, racking up um, hostility on the basis of race, you are, in a figurative sense, shouting fire in a crowded theatre because we know how quickly um, pogroms develop and how quickly race hatreds can ferment. So I don't like that part of it. But I fully understand that it has become um, a slippery slope which this government has now decided to start um, travelling down. And so for me, I think it, it does need attention, um, but I wouldn't... I would be looking to strengthen the distinction that I think the courts had an opportunity to put in but never did, uh, which is to get away from freedom of expression and talk about freedom of speech again, where it started, where, where the distinction between absolutely protected speech and speech which there might be an, a constraint on, such as people swearing using obscenities, is whether it's genuinely intended to persuade, whether it's part of the function that they wanted to protect was that people would be free to argue and that out of argument would become, would become more fully informed conclusions so that if your speech is coercive in the sense that you, that it's uh, blocking a street, it's not speech at all, it's just trying to create enough upset that your message, whatever it is, gets through, I've got much less sympathy for, um, for that than I would have with speech that is attempt to persuade in a, in a reasoned sense. And I, I say that as 
an MP who with Nandor Tankshoss um, included in the Local Government Act uh, late night in Parliament, uh, we combined and forced the government to make bylaws subject to the Bill of Rights Act. Um, and I did that in good faith and have been very disappointed that the judges have since turned to use that to allow the occupation of, a of Aotea Square um, scope when in, that in fact that wasn't speech, that was just ab abusing um, to public tolerance. Yeah, and I think we'd certainly agree that, um, look, there's many nuances and distinctions. This is a complicated um, area. I think there is a difference, as you say, between uh, speech uh, and action. There's, there's certainly a lot around um, intention. It's, again, what worries me when I, I see, particularly from the, the left side of politics, the call just to introduce these laws as if it's a, a quick, simple uh, fix. And, and returning to the Section 61 question, I think my first comments are just illustrating that, you know, if, if there's going to be an approach to this, it's got to be consistent, which I don't think, as it's put forward at the moment, uh, that it is. But myself would be nervous to remove um, such a section uh, outright. But it's just again. I think I could happily see an express statement in it as to what it doesn't apply to, and it certainly should never apply to protect um, criticism of religion. It shouldn't apply to protect criticism of political views or um, expression of sexual preferences and so on. Those are, are matters where we rely on that process of debate and expressions of revulsion and disgust or approval and the working out of them, given that we, we do not want to have to have um, all, our, all our conduct rules enforced by the state or enforced by anyone else coercively. We want, we want public opinion to shift and to um, shift in response to argument and criticism. Well, arguably those, those institutions actually grow stronger because of the criticisms or at times the mockery or the satire, the challenge. Um, you know, what I certainly see in a lot of the public discourse is, is at times there's an unwillingness often from those promoting um, hate speech legislation that they're not wanting to actually debate rationally or even reasonably with you. They just want to silence you and passing laws to say that's in, that's out. It's a very simple way forward, but fundamentally, it's a, it's a sidestepping of that very democratic process. Is yeah, let's share ideas, let's do it robustly, uh, and in doing so, you know, the two people debating or the groups debating and society as a whole will get stronger. That's classically the the, the, the follow situation, isn't it? Someone could have said, "Oh, well, he believes in hell." The rest of us don't. Who cares? Or they could have said, "I think he's absolutely wrong." He's right about adulterers, but he's not right about thieves. You know, no one has engaged in his, on his argument whatsoever. All they've decided to do is try and shut him down. I certainly find that a lot through, um, well, media in general, and sadly I see that a lot of New Zealand media on different uh, topics, and I've been caught up in it as well, that, yeah, you just get slammed uh, personally um, or just told that it's the wrong view. You shouldn't have said it, but no one takes the next step to say, well, why shouldn't you have said it? What was, what was wrong here? What's the counter position? And, um, you know, it's, it's something I do find debating uh, even into schools with uh, young people. I feel like Patrick was picking on young people here today, which is not the intention, but they'll often tell me why they think, sorry, 
<laughs> oh, well, I think that, that amazing the young generation, but again, particularly when I debate them, they, they're very clear on what they think. But when I ask them why, they don't generally articulate the why. They just, in a sense, get louder. Oh, well, if I just say my position in a stronger, more emotional way, then I must be right. And I suppose it's the way I've been trained. It's like, well, I don't really care if you're passionate about something. I want to know why you're passionate. Explain that. And, you know, if I was to make one change, I'd really like to see more in the education system towards philosophy, towards actually, and I don't want to say it should be compulsory, but actually getting people to critically think, to articulate the why, and be prepared to offend and be offended. Um, and I keep coming back to that theme, but it, it's what actually helps us grow. Well, there's always a danger there, Simon, because uh, when you when you use the word critical in the in the philosophical tradition, you know, you, one might mistake it for Marxist critical theory, which I think has taken over the philosophy departments in many universities. And oh, uh, yeah. most, most definitely, and I would definitely make that distinction. In fact, I, I've got to find a, a slightly better phrase because I clearly mean critical uh, thinking in the. Uh, the good grand philosophical sense of actually teasing out an idea. But yeah, critical theory is very much the Marxist, and that's very dominant now. There's only a single narrative, and it must be promoted through universities, the media, politics at all costs, and it's, that's an incredibly worrying uh, development. How, how would you do it, Patrick? How would you, if you were in a position to take over a, a school program of ethics or civics or whatever you like to call it, how would you excite young people into genuinely open-ended critical discussion? Well, I think that you have to start with the foundations of, of Western philosophy, then start with Plato and Aristotle, um, or so far as modern philosophy is concerned, Descartes, Locke, Leibniz, um, instead of going straight for Marx or Foucault. I think a lot of students now are quoting theorists like Foucault and the others without knowing that who they were responding to and who those thinkers were responding to. I mean, someone could have made an error philosophically um, along the way, and um, these students will never know. And it's kind of like a game of telephone so far as I can see where um, clear thinking and analysis, whether it is in regards to metaphysics or epistemology or ethics, um, is lost the further and further you get away from these fundamental thinkers. I mean, in, we misinterpret things all the time, and these great thinkers could very well have misinterpreted things themselves. So, And I mean, how many students know that Marx was influenced by Kant because he was responding to Hegel, because in Hegel responding to Kant? I mean, this is, well, so Simon, that, that, that would amuse you as a politician. It took me a while. I'm sure you picked up much quicker than me that almost no one is ever persuaded by going back to sources or principles or, or <laughs> apostolic succession. What they want is stories, and they've got to be illustrative stories. They want parables. Well, I think that's a challenge for all of us. It doesn't matter if we're from, uh, if you will, uh, lobbying to the law to politics. It's actually how we take those learnings. And, you know, I'm a, probably more of an Aristotelian. I got stuck philosophically, you know, thousands of years ago and didn't move on too far. But, you know, taking those learnings and translating them into to stories or parables, I think you said, Stephen, that actually that the public um, understands and, and, and appeals to. And maybe if there's been something that's been a mistake over the years, and I'm probably uh, part of it, is taking it complex ideas and not being able to articulate them in a way that facilitates further understanding. And so people have lost that and then move on to what are often seen as more attractive, simple answers, but actually have no depth. 
Do you think that that is an inherent problem in politics? Um, that you can't communicate complex ideas, you have to deliver a message with a, a three to in a three to four slogan, and I, anything that more than that, you and you risk losing, you know, hold on people. It takes too long to explain things, um, and it's not exactly that we can nail an entire treaty to the door of a church and expect the entire public to read and understand it. <laughs> one one of, one of the one of the difficulties, though, I, I think it's a real difficulty for our society compared to even our parents, is that we don't have a common store any longer of stories we can use to illustrate and elucidate in shorthand. And you, you, could, you once had all of the Bible stories, you also had Aesop's fables, you had Greek mythology, and you could just refer to, you know, everyone knew if you talked about Oedipus, mm. the, compl- the complexities in there. And when you read the old parliamentary debates, our parliamentarians were very easily able to talk about complicated things in shorthand by reference to commonly understood stories. I don't get a sense that your generation has much more than Harry Potter and possibly Star Wars as a as shared experience. And they're, they aren't, to me, very rich in complexity. No, they're not. Uh, um, I know some people at university who are reading Harry Potter for like the eighth time. And, um, and they're my age, in their mid to you know, early to mid-20s. Um, they, they aren't reading anything from the last century. There's no there's no Homer, uh, there's no Dostoevsky, there's no, you know, or, or, or any of the great classics where, you know, the classics for a reason, so, and there's nothing like that. Well, it's an arrogance, um, fundamentally, of, of uh, our age. I don't think it's a particular generation, but it's an arrogance that we know best and we're not prepared to, to take on uh, the wisdom that's been learned in the past. Now, you can critique what's passed on to you, you can challenge it and change it. But, you know, one of the reasons uh, people read the classics um, or knew of various, you know, tradition stories is that they did have a wisdom to impart and it was acknowledged, whereas now it's like, well, deconstructive thought is much more attractive. You see it in a lot of the universities and academia. They're not actually contributing anything other than breaking down what they've been given. So they dismiss and destroy the stories of the past and have nothing new to uh, to, to give. And I think it's a real um, a real loss. And I'm with you, Stephen. You look at the old parliamentary debates, or you got you think of the Churchills and others um, of the world. They were wonderfully classically trained, and in a sense, the, the Greek classics were a code. That yeah, if you mentioned Oedipus or the stories of Jason and the Argonauts, and so this had morals behind them, stories behind them, which people could instantly. Uh, linked to, but I think sadly a lot of those again have just been deconstructed, tossed out. We, this you know generation today, we know better, and we'll turn to our our new stories, which we'll make up as it goes along. And because they're generally weak, we have to pass laws to insist that this idea um, is the only idea to be accepted. The, the the key thing about those old stories was the the real dilemmas that were were. Um, facing the, the decision characters. They were, had awful choices between, not between self-obvious virtue and self-obvious evil, you know, the Punch and Judy show that you have in a, in a modern political discourse where the, the journalists are out there, the media are out there to establish who's got a black hat, who's got a white hat, and that's all they need to do. You had what is much more the daily experience of a politician is making choices where you will inevitably um, damage something 
but mm. there's a higher cost. And I, I sort of I ask Simon in your in your foreign affairs role, I see just about no enlightened discussion in New Zealand of some of the huge choices facing us. How do we how do we keep selling milk to China and avoid offending them enough that they don't give us a great whack while recognising that their values are so inimical to what we've always boasted about, to our moralising, that it makes us utter hypocrites. Um, that's, those are tensions which um, the free speech and hate speech discussion just doesn't get anywhere near looking at it. How do you shift people from Islam, which has many pernicious elements and all sorts of um, views on women, for example, that we've spent two generations trying to limit, if the, if the public discourse is to find a victim group and immediately turn them into, in, into the, the, the completely sheltered or protected um, um, participants where it's just not permissible and won't even be broadcast if you challenge their uh, their dogma. Oh, and I think that's one of the uh, one of the many uh, negative signs which comes out of that push for controlled speech for hate speech. And again, we don't have the legislation yet, and let's hope we never do. But we are already seeing in uh, some media outlets, um, yeah, a refusal to en- enable proper engagement, and I think. It, it, it basically reduces then confidence. It's classic if you stand for nothing, you fall for everything. And so, yeah, in the areas of foreign affairs, um, there are plenty of areas I think New Zealand should, in this case, assert its independence, insert its thinking, and assert what we see as a country as our priorities, and have robust discussions uh, with our allies and others, trading partners. But I think, again, this is the insidious nature of where discourse is going, that everyone just gets a little too deconstructed, too nervous, too unsure. Is this the right thing to say or not? I don't want to offend anyone. Well, I don't want and then to be nothing gets said. I don't want to be considered racist, so I won't say anything about geopolitics at all. Well, it's also a whole lot of uncertainty, which has kicked particularly into Western minds that, um, you know, the mistakes that have been made in the past now mean that we can't have any thoughts or opinions into the future. And I personally find that um, absurd. I think you learn from your mistakes and then you confidently... Engage, and I think we should uh, critique other countries and their uh, their their choices and decisions, particularly if they uh, are against what we, you know, we have a very liberal view of human rights, and I think we should speak confidently to those countries that don't. We challenge them, and if they want to challenge us back, all the better. Um, I'd also add just quickly your first point around the black and white. I've learned one thing in life through experience, and certainly early in my academic days when I was doing ethics. There's a whole lot of grey in the world. And again, a lot of the push against freedom of speech seems to be prefixed on a, a belief that there is black and white, the goody, the baddie, and that it's easily distinguishable. It's not. Life, human life, so complicated. Um, and I, I would be very worried, as you can probably guess around this whole topic, if we ended up with a very black and white approach to, to speech and not actually acknowledging what is human experience is very grey. Going back to the uh, um, journalists' gatekeepers here, do you, do you think it's in, uh, wholly a, uh, a internal moralization that you know they feel themselves virtuous in in this case, and they you know they're deciding what ought to be said, what ought not to be said, who's a goody, who's a baddie, or do you think maybe there is 
profit motive that's that's governing what they're screening in and out? Is it is it commercial in nature, or do you think it's really a possession of this very aggressive ethics that they hold? I don't, they're not they're not a collective, but there are prevailing orthodoxies and consensus amongst them on many things. And I think it's far more dangerous because they have a consensus about what ought to be um, covered and what ought, and what is not. I mean, if we take a very simple recent example, the New Zealand commentary on Andrew Little telling Google that they can't um, breach New Zealand suppression laws just stuns me. It, it, the natural journalistic instinct of my youth, when some of my friends became journalists, was to be reactively against suppression, reactively in favour of the right to know. And instead of someone saying, hang on a minute, is our suppression law working? What, what, why are we sheltering the judges and the courts in, in this system when there's been absolutely no uh, disciplined study to see whether or not trials are affected, should we know? And when we know that anyone who wanted to know the name of the person already knew, um, instead... They're all applauding, um, trying to censor Google. Now, that's such a huge shift from the media culture that um, was, say, 30 years ago. I don't think we have... I think we are insane if we rely on media ethics and media instincts to protect free speech. I think they are the priests. They are the enemies of free speech. So there's no free market element that they're competing with one another to show their listeners that they're the most virtuous ones. There's no profit motive whatsoever. It's clearly they have a vision of right and wrong. And like you said, they're, they're the self... Well, I think a profit motive would be great, but at the moment they don't know how to make a profit out of journalism. So. <laughs> yeah, I'd say it's a mixture of, of both. I mean, I, look, I have to go general because, of course, there'll be plenty of, I mean, there's plenty of reporters I know that would would be an exception, but I think an element of it is it very much a change from uh, in the case of you know, reporting what's happened rather than opining, and I think there's certainly something coming through the new training of of, of journalists that if, if they have a, a particular view on things, it's now their almost moral imperative to to push that, and obviously it's got to be in a very particular view. I'd say it's generally the progressive view, but that that's dominant, and if you're on that side of something, you're on the, what is it, the right side of history, you as a reporter, are now duty-bound to to push that. And that's quite a, a change in journalistic ethics um, from the past. And I think that's why you're seeing now a lot more yeah, opinions and supposed analysis uh, coming through. But the other is, is money. I mean, it's easier, as far as I can see, of sensational headlines and clickbait uh, links to draw people in. I think the, the, the model, the, the, the the model's failed. It's not generating the profit. So there's a desperate attempt uh, to, to draw people in. And scandal, outrage uh, appears to to sell. And I think that is really undermining things. And it's also, if I might, why you're finding politicians and other groups effectively trying to go around the media now to to talk to to people because that gatekeeping is seems the gate that only opens in one direction, and that's if you agree with them. And if you don't, you have a contrary view. Um, you just don't get published or you get mocked, yeah. uh, and that's a real problem. 
Simon, you've been assuming or we've been assuming that social media allow you to go around them, but if Google and Facebook are bastions of progressivism and they've been actually told by the government and her Christchurch compact that they must censor, um, that's no safeguard any longer. I'm also concerned that the view that it's profit-seeking is mistaken. If we take that suppression example as, as an instance, typically the New Zealand public would have been intuitively outraged at the notion that a murderer was going to get sheltered by the courts long after it had any value at all, and they would have applauded a brave, a brave news medium that decided to flout the, 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 the stupid suppression. There isn't the slightest hint of that now, and yet I think that would have generated more uh, positive, or could have generated more positive attention for at least some organ uh, that there isn't anyone who who, who dares do that. Uh, they, they, I, I was told recently by the producer of a, of a major electronic medium, I won't name him because he wouldn't have expected me to, that by having me on his show, he was then going to have to go back to face a storm of protest from the young journalists because I shouldn't have been given a platform. Not for anything other than who I am, not what I'd said, which was perfectly orthodox, reflecting my legal training and, and knowledge. Oh, well, that whole deplatforming thing is, is for me one of the greatest red lights and, and pernicious uh, dynamics that we have. Again, it's a very simple idea, and you hear it from people of, of any age, but to be clear on that, of, you know, oh, well, you know, you have a right to speak, but I don't have to, to give you a platform, you know, oh, my Lord. Um, you know, it's a, it's a simple, insidious statement, which a lot of people just, oh, that makes sense. But when you think it through in the real-life uh, situations where people are not even allowed to share uh, their view, it, it, it's absolutely crazy. But you're dead right about the ability to go around traditional media, the picky social media giants. Now, it's very clear that they are beginning to restrict uh, the content. Their algorithms will promote one view on a controversial topic uh, or not another, or they'll deem something sensitive, which I think most of us would not agree with. It, it's it's a worry. Um, and all you end up doing is, well, the market will find a way. Someone else will start something a bit more open. But we've also seen throughout history that ideas, when they get pushed underground, don't don't just disappear. They, they pop back up, and usually in very unhealth and unhelpful ways. I wanted to ask about the United Nations Migrant Compact. Um, the Free Speech Coalition holds no opinion on the uh, the migrant or immigration debate whatsoever. Um, but we do have concern around Objective 17 of the Compact, which looks to influence news media narratives around immigration. Um, National has recently come under fire claiming that the Compact would reduce New Zealand's sovereignty. And the government points to a uh, Crown Law report, which is meant to put some of these concerns at ease. Uh, what do you gentlemen think about this? I'll, I'll kick off by saying first that the Crown Law opinion um, is entirely orthodox, but uh, it doesn't say that it doesn't have an effect. Mm. It's quite right. It doesn't, it's not formally binding, but um, the courts do take account of what they consider to be international instruments and obligations undertaken. And where there's ambiguity, for example, uh, they're always overturning the decisions of ministers of immigration or telling them they haven't taken the right things into account. And a treaty like this could be given, or a, a, a compact like this could be given um, real practical effects uh, if they 
if the courts decided to say, I'm not prepared to hold that a document solemnly signed by the New Zealand government has no meaning. Of course when you sign up to something it has meaning. And the problem with it was that it deliberately says that the parties to it are taking on obligations to deplatform, essentially to withdraw support yeah. from, from news media that give um, anti-immigration views uh, um, traction. And there's no doubt at all that was the intention. Uh, it's an elite view that says you, know, you, the ordinary proles, shouldn't complain about immigration because it's good for you even if you don't think it is. And our government has signed us up to a compact which the courts will give effect to, um, saying it's OK for government to try and, and tilt the scales against or to prevent those anti-immigration views getting traction. Yeah, I think, um, unfortunately, with something like that particular compact that's become symbolic or being used, if you will, uh, for a, a wider purpose, I'd almost say that the, the particulars of the compact, what it was seeking to achieve and the objections to it, are almost becoming into the background. And there's been a, quite a deliberate effort, on my, from what I can see, to sort of conflate what the compact is and the variety of views on it with um extreme views and it's a deliberate attempt to try and conflate all opinions on it and picky those opposed as if it's one consistent uh, group and I think it, there's been a, a strong desire to then try to say that it's, it's, it's far right and it's only extremists and again that for me first and foremost illustrates the using of that particular uh, treaty or compact to, to further another agenda and because we're talking about free speech it's an agenda to stop particular opinions uh, being said. Um, Stephen's uh, right, strictly speaking, it's not uh, binding. We'd have to pass some domestic legislation to make it binding. But when a country signs up to something with the UN, there are there are obligations that, that follow. Uh, and there are concerning uh, suggestions and obligations in, in the compact. Um, you know, our allies, a number of our allies, um, have not signed up to it. I think, you know, fundamentally, New Zealand should be looking uh, carefully very, very carefully um, at this and, and fundamentally to actually have a robust discussion. I mean, if I was to, to put it this way, when was the last time that in the New Zealand Parliament or the media there was a clear discussion of the various clauses and, you know, Stephen touched on one around how immigration should be uh, reported. When was there last a proper full discussion of what's in the compact? And the answer is none. It's just been used to clobber certain groups. Oh, you agree with it, therefore you're righteous, or, or you disagree with it, oh, therefore you're wrong, and you're wrong with everyone else who has an opinion on it. In fact, we will take the extreme opinions and say that that therefore applies to all. You're all far right and extremist and crazy if you oppose it. And you go, well, that, that's hardly rational. Glad to see National came out on that. Um, New Zealand has signed up to a number, a number of instruments over the years that don't reflect uh, our values. And sadly, National signed up to the draft declaration on the rights of Indigenous peoples, which Helen Clark and her government had been very careful to avoid because it says things about um, uh, race rights, effectively, that that are racist. But uh, I, I felt you'd sort of redeemed yourself a bit when you came out saying, we don't want New Zealand signing up to things it really doesn't mean, and... Uh, there are bits of this where we should have expressed reservations. 
The Crown Law Opinion actually says that the government should have recorded its reservations on some of these important issues in Marrakesh when it was when they went to the ceremony. I don't know if they ever did. I don't think they did, but I'm pretty sure I would have heard if they had. And so the Crown Law Opinion, which which is being cited as if it gives a, a, a clean pass to this thing, was conditional and I haven't heard whether the conditions were ever satisfied. Well, again, I think the debate, unfortunately, is not around the particulars anymore. As I say, it's been used for a wider, um, I think, very unhelpful um, agenda. So one thing I'd share, it, it doesn't come from me. It comes from, I think, a, a much wiser uh, former diplomat who says, you know, the UN is really meant to be about the relationships between states, not the relationships within a state. And, you know, that's a debating point in it itself. But, you know, as we're seeing more of these, uh, I don't know, UN treaties, compacts, uh, and other dynamics, which aren't actually talking about state-to-state relationships per se, but about how a, an individual country should run itself, that's problematic. Uh, and, I mean, that's a much wider discussion for for another day, but it's something that certainly resonated with me. The UN is meant to be about state-to-state relationships, not the relationships within the state. It'd be a pretty good, simple rule to keep us keep keep people safe from some of these intrusions. I think that's all the time that we have. Um, I'd like to thank you both for uh, joining me here and discussing these issues uh, today. Um, I'm sure our listeners uh, found this extremely entertaining and thought-provoking. So thank you. Oh, an absolute pleasure to talk with you both, and look forward to, to doing so again. You have a great afternoon. Thanks, Simon. If you like this podcast and you would like to support us, you can go to www.freespeechcoalition.nz forward slash join. This has been the Free Speech Coalition podcast. See you next time.